Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the World Cup 2022 podcast. I am your host, Owen, along with... Josh, excited to be here. Excited to be here after forcing me to fly solo for one night. Uh, we're back giving the people what they want, which is more of Josh and a little bit less of me, thankfully. Uh, just a yeah. reminder, tonight's episode is sponsored by Homekeeper, simplifying home maintenance for busy homeowners. And you can learn more about that at thhkappapp.com. All right, and also, without going... No, also, me. our second sponsor, Bullfrog Home Curse Services. Line. Don't contact wow. us. I don't want any more work. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, it was tough missing right, so, you the other night, Owen. Yeah, I know. It was lonely. It was lonely, but uh, there was just there were too many games that day and Thanksgiving Day, and I knew we weren't going to be able to do anything Thanksgiving Day because, you know, we were we were hanging out with family, and uh, I was forced to watch the Cowboys and the Giants. So, uh, you know, my nephew's a huge Cowboys fan, and so at one point they did a cousin's picture, all the grandkids, my my in-laws we were out at their house and they've got 14 grandkids so all of them are there mm -hmm. the cowboys fan is the oldest of the grandkids and they all sit down in front of the fire to to take this picture and poor guy i mean he's a good sport he's 16 and he still still wears the matching pjs with everybody and everything you know so god bless him but i did give him a little bit of a hard time and uh and he's a listener of the show so he'll appreciate this but uh, at one point all the moms were saying smile say cheese and i said everybody say giants mm -hmm. and uh he he didn't he didn't love that but um <laughs> but hey, it, was worth what, it. Uh, it was worth it for the reaction you know yeah as far as uh, extended family uh conversations on thanksgiving go he needs to appreciate what he's got you know <laughs> that's true it's a great point it's a great point all right, yeah. so today's episode, we're going to run through a quick recap of Thanksgiving game days and today's games. Uh, and then we're also, of course, going to have some special attention on the U.S. game. But then we're going to talk about some other soccer stuff. So as a result of this tournament, you start getting a bunch of or people like me anyway, who live and breathe soccer and love it to death, start to get a ton of questions about uh, just random things. Stuff like field size and uh, the number of fields at the World Cup. And how many countries are there? And who plays in which stadiums and why? Uh, so we're going to go through some of those things. And then uh, lastly, we're going to look forward to round two. And we're going to talk a little bit about how we saw this play out today. But we're going to talk a little bit about how uh, everything really changes a lot as we progress through this tournament. Because everyone comes out playing safe. They're trying to get a feel for it. There's a ton of nerves uh, some of these teams, the U.S. is a good example, haven't been at a tournament in eight years. Some of these teams have not been at a tournament in longer. Uh, and so no matter what, the international stage is always a big one. Uh, so once you've worked those nerves out, round two and three start to open up a little bit more. So we'll talk a little bit about what that what that means. Anything else you want to cover today, Josh? No. Well, that sounds great. Maybe some predictions for tomorrow. Oh, predictions for tomorrow that i can do i don't know that i have anything formal written but i'm just gonna go i'm gonna fly by the seat of my pants i love and, that uh, i think it's i think it's gonna work so that's we'll what see. podcasting is all about really well, well yeah yeah it's an opportunity for people like you and i who have a face for radio and a lot of terrible opinions to <laughs> uh to offer those so um that's that's what we're gonna do 
Yeah. All right. So Switzerland I mean, Cameroon was a good game. Sorry. Go ahead. I'll stop for just a moment, and you can say what you were going to say. Yeah, we need to be in studio. Uh, our banter just keeps uh, struggling over, <laughs> over, uh, over the mobile thing here. But hey, at least we have voices for radio too, right? And by we, I mean mm-hmm. you. So. Oh wow. I'm, I'm just glad to listen to it. And it's not just if, me. You you read the comments that we get for this show, you know? Oh, you man. see all the they, things they people are, say. They are very encouraging. Yes, very encouraging. We love there's, we love the audience. So there's that one guy, uh that one commenter who's all over the place, Ransom. I think he said that uh hmm. I think he mm-hmm. said that uh your voice is to the ears what Giroux's physique is to the eyes. And that was Oh my that was impressive. Goodness. Like poetry right, so that was one of the that was one of the first questions i got yesterday when i sat down with my my nephew and his dad they said all right so olivia Giroux, show me a picture of him <laughs> <laughs> i said okay here we go get ready uh such a beautiful man yeah this better not right. awaken anything uh, in me <laughs> so I, I really think we need to get him on the show i think it's crucial because then we could go video and you and i could wear masks because we have mm-hmm. COVID or something and everyone could just look at olivia Giroux the whole time it'd be fantastic Oh yeah. Uh, so that's 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 next episode. We're gonna try to get Olivier Giroud. Probably not, but we'll see. Uh, so the Swiss came to play in this game, and they played their style. We talked about this a little bit uh, in kind of the build up to these games. Uh, they're very workmanlike. I mean, they're they're disciplined. They're not gonna have the flair players going forward, but they're not gonna make a lot of mistakes. Um, you know, the Swiss. If you look back at their at their scoring records in the last three years. Every game they win or lose, pretty much all the time, is by one goal. So their games are always close. They're hard to break down, but they also won't they also won't score a ton of goals on you. So this one, Switzerland came out on top, one zero over Cameroon. Um yeah. one interesting note in this game, and Josh, I'm gonna let you talk about this, but so Briel Mbolo, we we spoke about him a little bit. I think he is a fun striker to watch. I, I talked about him in the monologue a little bit, but uh, he has really kind of an interesting backstory, and some people were wondering about this during the Switzerland game, so I'll let you talk about that some. Yeah, it's interesting, and if you watch the game, you probably saw this. He scored a goal, the winning goal of the game, and did not really celebrate afterward, and that's fairly uh, common in soccer in certain situations. Uh, his situation being that while he was playing for the Swiss, he actually has... Uh, heritage in Cameroon so he was born in Cameroon and uh while not playing for the team but actually playing against them which is interesting so there's some I mean we talked about who gets to play on these national teams people from these different countries but there are situations where people have eligibility in multiple countries and uh this is one example so he was born in Cameroon um Pretty early on, he moved with his mother to France, early on as in in his childhood. Uh, I think he was five when he left Cameroon, moved to France with his mother, and she ended up marrying a Swiss Swiss national. And he gained his citizenship about, I think, eight years ago is what I read on the article. So he's uh, got eligibility because he was born in Cameroon to play for them. Um, but also eligibility to play for Switzerland because of his citizenship. So uh, all players who have the opportunity to uh, play for multiple countries need to at some point kind of elect which one they're going to go with. So you can't kind of bounce around throughout your career playing for 
for multiple countries. Um, but you you do get the choice um, based on kind of those those qualifications. So that was an interesting little little tidbit in this game, and he was trying to show respect to his uh, country of birth and his his heritage by not like running around and yelling at the crowd and fist pumping uh, as he scored this goal against Cameroon. Yeah, it is interesting. So you'll see this throughout the tournament. And one kind of one of the nuances there that I had questions around was, is eligibility the same as citizenship? And it's not. It's not. So, um, you know, you don't have to necessarily have citizenship to a country in order to be eligible to play. Uh, there are a couple of, of tournaments or a couple of players in this tournament that, that are not citizens of the nations that they are playing for. Uh, you have to have familiar heritage, kind of like Josh was talking about it. But, uh, but yeah, that's that's kind of an interesting note. And and the U.S. team has several people that were born and raised in different countries. Two people in the starting lineup today that were born and raised in England. So um, when you hear them interviewed after the game and they have English accents, well, there you go. That's why. Uh, so next game was Uruguay-South Korea. Uh, I had this as a potential upset for South Korea. Uruguay were very, very high odds favorites in this game. Not really sure why uh, they're talented from a striker perspective. Uh, but South Korea were, were pretty solid defensively and are likely to be pretty pleased with this result as they came in uh, against a pretty talented Uruguay squad, especially from an attacking standpoint. Uh, Portugal, Guana, Ghana was another one. So Portugal, Ghana, Cristiano Ronaldo, of course, being the headline story for this. How's he going to perform? You know, is is all the contract stuff just, or the contract stuff at the club going to impact him while he's looking for another job at this tournament? And it, it didn't seem to. You know, he scored a goal on a on a penalty in this game, and the penalty that was given was pretty soft, I thought. Uh, but he also became with that goal the first player to score in five World Cups, which Amazing. is just. It's unbelievable. I mean, five World Cups every four years, so that's 20 years of play. Um, means he came into a World Cup and debuted at age 17 and scored, and now he's scoring at age 37. So it, that, to me, is just unreal. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, that's that's an accomplishment. I did think Portugal had a little bit more flair once he came off the field and Gonçalo Ramos came on, but, it, you know, he's he's still going to be in there because he's the team captain. He's going to play a lot of minutes. Um but yeah, look at that going forward. 3-2 in that game. So Portugal does struggle a little bit defensively, as does Ghana. So we'll, we may, may see some scores uh, with those two teams run up pretty high. Mm-hmm. Brazil-Serbia, another interesting game. So Brazil came out of this 2-0. Uh, it, they looked pretty comfortable in this game. Uh, Richarlison from Tottenham Hotspur in the English Premier League scored both their goals. Uh, he had what I think... Uh, at this point is the goal of the tournament. Uh, I don't know if you saw this one, especially in slow-mo, Josh, but it was absolutely amazing. Uh, he popped it up, flicked it over his shoulder, and then scissor kicked it you know, at shoulder level uh, out of the air. It's unbelievable. Yep, like a video game. Um, just amazing. I don't think you can argue so far a goal of the tournament. I mean, it was, it was incredible. So Serbia, I was a little bit disappointed. You know, they don't have a ton of pace, so they're not going to really break on the counter. Brazil dominated the possession. I do think Brazil, their back line is is a little suspect. You know, they had some errors in defense. Uh, I thought the Paqueta choice in the starting 11 was an interesting one, not because of the player. I think he's an exceptional player, but because of how they played him. They played him in, in a defensive kind of holding mid 
uh, of, of a midfield five, basically, that, that was he was paired with Casemiro, who's very much a defensive midfielder. So I thought it was kind of a weird position to put uh, Lucas Paqueta in, and I thought, you know, obviously Bruno from Newcastle should have been in there instead in that particular role. But it'll be interesting to see how Brazil plays against uh, the other teams uh, in their second and third game. So, yeah. And All right, I, I saw today. this. I saw okay. earlier today, Owen, that uh, Neymar is likely out of the remaining group stage games with his ankle. Um, I think they were checking that, and I'm sure I'm sure things could change day to day. So Neymar might be out. I mean, we talked about the depth of the the number of Fords playing for Brazil, so it may not have a huge impact for the rest of the group stages, but. Uh, We'll likely see one of the big names in the tournament um, out a game or two. Uh, we'll see. Hopefully, hopefully he can bounce back and be healthy uh, quickly, though. Yeah, absolutely. So we then had uh, today's games. And so the early one being the 4 a.m. game, uh, 5 a.m. Eastern Wales-Iran. So this was an interesting one to watch for the U.S. game because... Uh, I said a little bit in the podcast, but talked a lot about this yesterday just in, in casual conversation with people. I really felt like if this game was a draw or Iran won the game, that it would take a lot of the pressure off the U.S. because they would know the scenario uh, in what they had to take care of in this game. Whereas if Wales went in and won, it would be a, well, we have to get a result from this game. And then we are still dependent on other results elsewhere. So this game yep. was, was a kind of a shocker. Uh, nil-nil the whole game, very late red card with only a couple of minutes left. The Wales goalkeeper gets sent off. Mm -hmm. So Wales down to 10 men at the very end of this game. Iran scored two goals in stoppage time, 98 or 90 plus eight and 90 plus 11. So deep, deep into stoppage time on both those goals. And it, it was crushing for Wales because it essentially eliminates them. Uh, we'll get into a little bit when I talk about some of the group breakouts and what to look for the rest of this round as to what that means for the U.S. But mm -hmm. uh, this also brought this was the first red card of the tournament. So, like, what is what does this mean for Wayne Hennessy, who's their goalkeeper, Josh? Yeah, really, really a heartbreaker for those guys. You could see their reaction uh, when they were scored against. But um, yeah, for for those of you who aren't as familiar with soccer uh there are normal fouls that happen and the fouls will generate a free kick uh to the other team and you'll also see some of those fouls happen inside the 18 yard box which we'll talk about later in kind of the field shape those those result in penalty kicks um in addition to a foul there are certain types of fouls that have um enough enough uh, force in them or they're they take the nature of a certain type i guess that you would get cards so there's two cards in in soccer yellow cards and red cards a yellow card is for a like particularly bad foul or let's say someone does kind of like three fouls in a row in pretty short succession um the ref's kind of keeping track of that might give a yellow card for um, multiple fouls in a row um even things like dissent like getting in the face of the ref and screaming at them can get you a yellow card and then mm -hmm. if you get a second yellow card in the game that gives you a red card or if there's a like very 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 particularly like heinous action you can get a straight red card um and what a red card does is it gets you sent off the field 
for the remainder of the game, and your team is not allowed to replace you. So if a team, normally starting with 11 players, has a red card against them, they would be playing with 10 for the rest of the game. And it doesn't matter if that happens at the end of the game with just a few minutes left or it happens in the first minute. Um, the rest of the game gets played out with only 10 players. And beyond that, there's, there's impacts for the remainder of the tournament. So the goalkeeper uh, for Wales here, he got a straight red card for this foul. The, the reason being because of the nature of the foul as well as um, him essentially being the last defender. So denying a goal scoring opportunity um, with the foul way outside the box of, of the player who would have scored if he wasn't fouled basically. And that means that this goalkeeper, in addition to being sent off and not being able to finish the game, um, also misses the next game. So has to serve a suspension of one game. And that would, uh, that would apply to anyone in the tournament. A red card means you have to serve a one-game suspension following the, the game of the incident. Uh, for the World Cup as well, there, we're also tracking the number of yellow cards. Um, it's a little bit unique because it's this short, um, this short tournament, a bunch of games in a short period of time. And if a player gets two yellow cards, not in the same game, but in, but in separate games, they would get to finish that second game, but they would have to miss the following game after that. So... Let's say one of our players for the U.S. got a yellow card in the first game. And then in the third game that we're, that we're going to play against Iran, gets another yellow card. That means once we win, once we're through the group stages, um, that, that this player would have to miss that round of 16 game that the United States qualified for. They would serve the suspension of one game. And the only exception to this is that all the cards reset after the quarterfinals. So basically when we get to the semifinals and the finals, they have it so that every player is going to be out there playing. They're not going to be um, having players serving suspensions. They don't want their top players out of the semifinals or the finals. So um, all that resets, I guess the only exception being if you get like a red card in the semifinal, then you wouldn't be allowed to play in the final. But as far as yellow cards and everything counting up, um, those all reset in the quarterfinals. So it's something to watch. Um, players, if they get an early yellow card in the game, you'll see them be a lot more conservative in the kind of tackles they try and make. Uh, they don't want to do another. They don't want to risk another foul that could get them another yellow card and sent off. Um, and yeah, it's it's just another factor that goes into into the World Cup and what players are thinking through and and trying to pay attention to. You might even see substitutions made if. A certain player gets a yellow card because they're kind of at risk of getting sent off um, with a second yellow card or or that suspension rule. Um, so coaches might make tactical changes just based on the number of cards certain players have. Anything to add, Owen? Well, sure, and you hinted at this a little bit, but there is some gamesmanship there that goes into you know when you're taking players off the field. Uh, you probably noticed if you were watching the U.S.-England game today that Serginio Dest, our, our right fullback, was a little bit frustrated that he was being taken out of the match. Uh, you know, there's, 
there's several reasons why. One is, and I talked about this after the first game, him and Weston McKinney were both brought out around the same time. And both of them were struggling for fitness going into this tournament. And so what that means is that your legs get more tired, you get more careless, you get more reckless, you're more likely to draw a, a card in some capacity. And Weston McKinney and Sergio Dest, or Serginio Dest were both on yellow cards from the first game. So you saw Burhalter take them out of this game to protect them for that Iran game because we know that that's, that's the winner-take-all, essentially. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. It's, there, there's definitely gamesmanship in each of these to, to protect some of those players that are going to be super important. So, second game of today is Qatar-Senegal. Uh, Qatar is officially eliminated from this tournament after this game. Love to see it. Uh, you know, Senegal... I'm glad they won this game. Puts them right back in contention in this group. Um, you know, I think Netherlands-Ecuador, the last game is going to be Netherlands-Qatar, so you love Netherlands to go through in that scenario. But it, it really sets us up for a fun kind of winner-take-all out of the, the Senegal-Ecuador game. Senegal has to win that game. Ecuador can survive and go through with a tie against them. Uh, so it'll be it'll be fun to see how that one plays out because Senegal can score some goals, and they showed that today. Um, but they also can be opened up pretty badly at the back, which they also mm-hmm. showed today. I think Qatar had at least one, maybe two goals that were pulled back because of offside. And, and so um, it'll be interesting to see that game. We could have Ecuador-Senegal be a you know a, a four to three or something like that, which that's just really fun, tons of goals, uh, and just a lot of open and expansive play. Uh, third game today was Netherlands-Ecuador. So this game played out to a 1-1 draw. So Ecuador now sits on top of this group. Actually, they don't sit on top of this group. They're tied exactly with Ecuador. If you want to get technical, I guess you go alphabetical. But they've both scored the exact same amount of goals. Uh, they have the same goal differential. They've both won one, drew one. So it, you know they're they're up on top. Netherlands again nailed on favors to go through because their final game is against Qatar. Uh, yeah, any, hey. Anything on those two, Josh, and Group A? Yeah, fun fact, digging deep into the weeds. But if if a group, there's a tiebreaker after goals scored. So we kind of talked about this earlier. You got points for wins, and then you do goal difference to break ties, and then you do goals scored to break ties. Beyond that, you go to what's called fair play, and it counts up the number of yellow and red cards that a team has over those three games. And the team with the fewest number of cards, there's like a point system for the cards. Uh, we don't need to get into it. I hope I hope that no tiebreaks are determined by that. But uh, <laughs> yeah, the there's a, yeah, there's a there's a point system, and the team with the fewer strikes against them, basically because of cards, would advance on on like that fourth level of breaking a tie. And yeah, like you said, it'd be awful. I mean, we see some. We've seen some officiating in this tournament that uh, it seems like it seems like the refs are out there to steal the spotlight a little bit. Um, that's the impression I've gotten. So uh, yeah, it'd be awful if a uh, if a team didn't make it through because of how many cards they'd been given. It's the worst possible way to break a tie, and because there's only three games, you have to have that, and sometimes it does go to that, which is just. It's kind of like that strength of schedule tiebreaker in the NFL where it's like, really? But how are you determining yeah. it? Because it just it, it feels subjective. 
but yeah, yeah it's, you, it's a it's a tough one to to get to. You said you said it's the worst way to break a tie, and I'll remind you of the uh, NFL overtime rule, especially in like I don't know a Super Bowl situation where your team's about <laughs> to beat the Patriots, uh, and then they somehow come back, and then we don't even get a possession in overtime. Never mind. I'm Josh is a Falcons I'm... fan, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All right. So now, on to the main course. Oh, my goodness. All right. You I have so much say. to say about this you one, Josh. Say. Yeah, ex- say. I've got, actually got a sound bit. I may throw it in here when I when I go back to production on this podcast and throw it in there. But I got my kids chanting, USA, USA. So, so awesome. Uh, what a game this was. I mean... The U.S. announced themselves in a huge way in this game. Uh, They had better offensive stats. They looked better for large stretches of the game. And they definitely seemed to want it more. And I think one thing that cannot... I'm going to repeat this, and I'm going to say it emphatically and as clearly as I possibly can. I cannot emphasize enough how good this England team is. And I also can't overstate how well seasoned they are and experienced they are just with the success they've had in the last couple of tournaments. Uh, You're talking about a Euro finalist Mm -hmm. last summer and a World Cup semifinalist in the last World Cup. And this is Mm -hmm. a lot of the same players being returned. So they are a very, very well oiled machine on the international stage and they have exceptional talent across the board but the u.s just seemed to have greater cohesion today you know they just they seemed to really be playing for each other uh tyler adams again he was immense he was incredible today and this is a young man who who actually kind of played is slotting into a role that was taken over by one of england's premier uh, midfielders who actually hasn't had a chance to play in this tournament yet, Calvin Phillips, he was sold from Leeds onto Manchester City, who's you know the best club in the world, to play kind of that holding midfield role. And Tyler Adams stepped into his place at Leeds and, and has taken it by the horns. And it's, it showed in this tournament as well. I mean, he's exceptional. Mm-hmm. And it's so obvious now, and I think the U.S. is the only team in the tournament to do this, but he was voted captain by teammates. This wasn't a decision by the coach to make him captain. That's that's the typical way to do that. And mm-hmm. Christian Pulisic is obviously the face of this team. But Tyler Adams played his heart out. He was screaming at everybody. And, it, I mean, that young man is a, is a star. And he's going to be absolutely incredible for uh, club and country. So excited to see how his – only 23 years old. So excited to see how his career continues to – to progress. I think Weston McKinney, so I there's so much potential bottled up in there. I thought mm-hmm. today was the best international game I've ever seen from him. Uh, he had two shooting opportunities that are still floating somewhere in orbit uh, because they were just awful takes. Uh, those, but, those stand out in my mind, yeah. Uh, <laughs> a a, they, a they bit were, ambitious. They were a problem. They were a problem. <laughs> yeah. But he bossed the midfield today. I mean, he was, he was turning on players and muscling people out and and I thought Yunus Musa was a very similar story to that. Uh, it was this game to me was kind of an international coming out party for him. I mean, he was, he's only 19 years old, and he's out there pushing people around like Declan Rice and Jude Bellingham, who are, you know, two of the best midfielders in the world. Declan Rice 
arguably the best defensive midfielder in the world behind Bruno Gimmerich. So it's it's fascinating to see these really young players mm-hmm. uh, and Weston McKinney being the senior member of that at 24 uh, mm-hmm. just come out and really, really boss this midfield. And I'm going to take just a minute here, Josh, and if I get too technical, you tell me to stop and okay. translate it. But I want to take a minute to talk through what the U.S. did today and why it was successful because it's a big deal. And we've never seen adjustments like this that were this effective from a U.S. coach before. I think Jurgen Klinsmann tried to do it a little bit too early in his tenure. But even then, I think Berhalter is going to get a lot of praise for how he coached this game because he made a subtle but significant tactical change. Uh, Berhalter knew that this England team was going to come out and play a 4-3-3. And a 4-3-3, when you hear these numbers, you always the, the first number you say is the number of defenders, number of midfielders, and then number of forwards. So a 4-3-3 meaning there's four defenders, three midfielders, three forwards. Mm-hmm. This formation is very in vogue. It's a very popular formation throughout club football right now. So hot right now. Sorry. Club soccer. My fault. Good grief. I've been watching too many Peyton Manning, David Beckham commercials. Um, so it, it's it's a very popular formation in the same way that in the early 2000 tournaments you had a lot of 5-3-2s. So this, this formation is the formation right now. And the U.S. played the same 4-3-3 in many of their qualifying games and, and actually played it in the first game as well against Wales. And they came out with the same personnel today, with the exception of a swap at center forward. We talked about Josh Sargent. I talked about how he was a little bit anonymous in that first game. He mm-hmm. came on as a substitute. I felt like he was, again, completely anonymous. I feel bad for the young man. I don't know what's going on with him. I don't know if the stage is, is big and he's nervous about it or there's a niggling injury or whatever it is. But what we actually did is we shifted the formation into a 442 which means we dropped Christian Pulisic back into midfield and we pushed Weston McKinney out to that right spot in midfield. And so what that did is that closed down a lot of the passing lanes for England because we created an overload in the middle of the field. We had more players than they had in the midfield positions. Mm -hmm. And so that can be a really, really positive thing when you know that you're outclassed from a talent perspective because it puts you into more of, uh, for football fans, more of a zone look than a straight man-to-man because you're marking passing lanes, you're marking where the play can move to as opposed to, you know, this is your guy because you match up in a 4-3-3. But it made a huge difference in this game. And I think the most obvious place that that showed up, and, and you heard Landon Donovan talk about this several times in the commentary, was the attacking transition on the right side. So with Weston McKinney on the right midfield side, he had less defensive responsibility and duty, and he was able to kind of always turn and look forward with the ball. And then having Serginio Dest, who's just exceptionally fast and a very good crosser of the ball and always looking to get forward, they were really able to kind of push and take advantage of, of England's left side of defense. It's a little bit weaker. You know, you've got Kieran Trippier and John Stones on the right side. Those are the two better defenders. And then you had Harry Maguire, who's a right-footed player, playing on the left side of defense, which isn't a huge deal, but it makes a subtle difference. And Luke Shaw, who's just not as good as Kieran Trippier. So I, they they came out with a specific game plan, and I thought Burhalter really, really nailed this one. It was so great. And I hope that we see some of this kind of forward thinking and, 
and tactical shift. It took about 15, maybe not quite that long, but it took about 10, 15 minutes for Gareth Southgate, the England coach, to actually stand on the sideline. And you could hear him if you listened closely through the TV mics yelling at his players they're in 442 they're in 442 so he's yelling that at his players to try to get them to kind of shift their play style uh, but they didn't really have an answer for it until uh, until later in the game so i just thought it was an absolute masterstroke and loved what uh, burhalter was able to do with just kind of the flexibility of some of these players uh pulisic of course was fantastic in this game i say of course because he has all the talent in the world but he really grew into this game. You know, he hit the crossbar. That was such an incredible shot. I mean, he just pulled that thing and whipped it towards the goal. It was such a great shot. Really wish that had gone in. Would have been fantastic. But what you saw some from him later in the game is he kind of reverted back to that roaming number 10 or attacking midfielder. Uh, and we've seen mm-hmm. him do that a lot in past U.S. games where they just sort of give him creative liberty. He had a lot of uh, specific assignments early in that game as they were trying to feel it out. But then they just gave him creative liberty to to kind of do what he does which is dribble at people and and kind of create those little quick one-two passing situations to to open up space so it was fun to see him grow into the game but that our midfield is just fantastic and i'm so excited about the future of these guys because the next world cup they're all going to be dead like dead in their primes so uh it's going to be really really fun to watch them Uh, last note and then i will let you talk josh (laughs) I think if we show up at even 80% or more, then we will easily beat Iran of what we showed today. Uh, The team just wanted it. They wanted it really, really badly. Uh, I think that this is a super favorable matchup for us. Uh, You know, the U.S. is more talented than Iran. We want it. And it's not to say that Iran's a bad team or they don't want it. Uh, But... This team will be feeling a lot of confidence coming off of that game with England, knowing that they just held them to a nil-nil draw when Iran took a 6-2 beating from them. So um, they're going to go into this game feeling really, really good. And I almost like, at least from a mentality perspective, maybe not from a a points and an actual tiebreak perspective, but I almost like the Iran winning more uh, more than the Wales Wales draw uh, because it just the, the way that it's going to kind of play in the players' minds is, is going to be it's going to be a little bit different. What do you what did you think about the game, Josh? Yeah, Owen, I think I just uh, am going to agree with you on a lot of what you said, and uh, I mean for for years now I've kind of heard the, the United States characterized as that like passionate team that has a desire that really wants it um i've i've had you know people from other countries that that follow soccer and they think of the united states team and they're like you know that that chant that the fans do makes perfect sense they say i believe that we will win and that's what they're yelling in the stands and that kind of characteristic like characterizes the united states play style and um the players out there and and the team is there's this belief and it kind of drives uh the players onward and you see it's almost it's almost like they're the underdogs whether whether they like in reality are or not because they're playing with this uh like we're gonna go out there and and take this attitude so i think we definitely saw that today 
um, to kind of translate what you were saying about uh, the formations into what we saw in the game, if you think about some of the other games where the top teams were playing against uh, some of the lower teams, you might have seen, uh, I think I'm thinking of the Spain game, like Spain had so much possession, and the team they're playing Uh against is sitting super deep and just always defending, and that was not happening today uh, in the U.S.-England game. Like, England, the superior team on paper, right? Um, You would expect them to be just having the ball all the time, all the possession. They're the ones attacking. Uh, We're just sitting deep, can't get out of our own half of the field, but that isn't how it worked, and I think a big part of that is the midfield uh, breaking down the uh, England possession and and taking the ball and control of control of play right back early on instead of instead of super deep in their own half. So I definitely saw that as well. And I mean, if we haven't said it, our groups our groups in a scenario now where no matter what else happens with the England versus Wales game, uh, if the United States beats Iran, then we will go through the group stage into the uh, the round of 16. And uh, I like having I like having our fate in our own hands as well, for sure. So um, can't can't lose or tie though. So um, <laughs> there's a little bit of pressure there. Uh, and Iran isn't isn't a bad team, but uh, I definitely I mean I I've got that belief and that confidence that they'll they'll go out there and get the result and uh, make it to the knockout stages. Yeah, it's it's great to bring up the whole the Iran thing because they they are and I, I hope people don't forget this they are the the highest ranked uh, Asian team in this competition and that includes South Korea and Japan who we have gushed over I have gushed over specifically mm-hmm. uh, and so it, they're not a joke they're really not um, and I think you know to your point earlier about formation I, I expected the U.S. to come out and just soak pressure and only play on the counter but that was not the game plan today and i don't think going into the iran game that burhalter is going to go in with the same game plan that he went into wales with um you know wales came out and and obviously played us like we were the favorites i don't know that iran is going to do that i think that we have the opportunity i think we are the favorites i think we're a better team on paper Mm -hmm. but um, you know, I don't know that they're going to give us that same level of respect that Wales did, which I think really honestly plays to our team a little bit better, uh, you know, being in a scrappy fight. And listen, yeah, I mean, England had in the first 25 minutes, it was a little bit scary. They had 70-something percent of the possession, but by the end of the game, we leveled it out to, I think, 46-54. So they only mm-hmm. had slightly more possession. <clears throat> and so I'll be excited to see how the Iran game plays out. I would like to see Zimmerman taken out of the squad. I know we gave him flack for the Gareth Bale penalty in that first game. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he was the only liability on the pitch today. Other people made errors, but Zimmerman had several very, very errant passes that put us in awkward situations. Um, and so he's either got to give the ball to Tim Ream every time to be the ball-playing defender, or he's got to go sit on the bench. And we do have some options at center back there. I think John Brooks is a, is a great uh, a great shout. Um, he's getting up there a little bit, but he was kind of the hero of, of our last World Cup eight years ago. 
scored a crucial goal, uh, and he's 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 a little bit better with his feet. You know, he's he's a uh, he was before Christian Pulisic moved the most expensive American player ever in European soccer from a transfer fee perspective. So there's something there. And I think that he, he could do a better job than Zimmerman has done. And I just don't know if Zimmerman's confidence is going to catch back up uh, during, during the the rest of this, this tournament. So that's about Mm -hmm. the only shot that I would have for a replacement. Um, But yeah, the, the team was just good and they're not perfect. They're not perfect. I don't want people to hear me say that the U.S. team is unbeatable. Oh, my goodness, they're so great. I love the U.S. team. I love U.S. soccer. I'm so glad to see where it's come in the last 20 years. There were some errors today, but there were errors against, you know, some of the top five, top ten people, position players in the world. Uh, and so, you know, I can I can shake that off a little bit easier than I can some of the errors against Wales and if there are similar errors against Iran. So, <clears throat> all right, officially done with that. Yeah. So, Owen, Would why don't you talk to... a little bit about a uh, little bit about our favorite uh, host country, Qatar, and the stadiums they've built and the fields they're playing on, the locations, uh, all of that yes. stuff. Yes. 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 So, first, I will say, Qatar, first host nation to not make it out of the group stage in like fifty years. So, congrats to them. Uh, really excited they crashed out. Um, but yes, I've gotten questions about this. So people have asked me, oh, they're all playing games in the same stadium? No, they're not. Um, so Qatar has eight total stadiums that are in use for this tournament. It's unique in that what you'll see in the U.S. is we're going to have games that are hosted in Seattle and in Dallas and in, at Gillette in uh, you know Foxborough up in Massachusetts. You're going to have games that are up in, I forget what the Canadian host cities are, but I'm pretty sure Toronto is one of them, Mexico City. So there's going to be players getting on planes and flying to different parts of the country uh, to play these group stage games. Now, it's also going to be a summer tournament, so it's going to be more spread out. So there's going to be more host cities, more host stadiums. The games are going to have more than four days between them. So this tournament's only a 30-day tournament. The summer ones are usually six to seven weeks. Uh, so... Qatar has eight total stadiums for this kind of condensed schedule, and none of them are more than 80 miles apart, which is which is very unique. Mm-hmm. Um, all but one of those stadiums, the one stadium being the stadium that they've had for years that has hosted their international games, all opened, so seven of the eight opened between 2019 and 2022, and they were purpose-built for this tournament. Uh, mm-hmm. The flagship stadium of that group is the Lucille Stadium. So we had the opener in that game, uh, and it's unbelievable. The architecture on a lot of these stadiums is is absolutely stunning. Um, I can say that Qatar spared no expense on, on many of these. Uh, but yes, so there are eight total stadiums. And so if you do the math, which is way too hard to do, so I'll kind of help you through it. Um, each stadium is set to have a full day empty between games. So all of these stadiums are played on real grass. Uh, I don't think it's a FIFA requirement for all international games, but all of the men's World Cup tournaments are, are played on grass. Mm-hmm. I think there were a few horrible exceptions. I think there was one turf field in South Africa in 2010. Um, and I think that there was one turf field, not in, not in Korea, Japan, but maybe in the 02 World Cup that ended up causing a lot of injuries. So... 
all of these fields of guitar are real grass. They're played on real grass. And they all have at least one full day to recoup between games. That means people are going out filling in divots that are caused by slide tackles and just kind of allowing the grass to, to kind of heal and reroot and potentially even laying down some new sod in areas where it's, it's too damaged to take up. Uh, so of the eight stadiums, all of them host at least six games uh, with it being at least five group stage games and one round of 16 game. So they'll host five group stage games, one round of 16 game uh, at each stadium at a minimum. Now, the U.S., for instance, is not playing all of their games at the same stadium. So they'll play all of their group games at a different stadium. Uh, and so all the teams, they don't have like a home stadium during this tournament. They, they all shift around. Mm-hmm. So the remaining stadium, so there's, there's four, uh, four other stadiums that will have additional games. So you'll have the quarterfinals, semifinals split up, and then the game for third place. And the final is then hosted at the Lucille Stadium, which is that flagship stadium we talked about. Uh, and that has the most games with nine total. So you have a couple of these that have uh, seven games, you know, one with eight games, and then Lucille has the most with nine games. So over a 30-day period, the most played on field will still only have nine games. Got Is that it. enough math for you, Josh? Or do you need more I actually, math? I actually wanted more math, but uh, if we could, like, shift Fair to maybe, enough. like, geometry or something and maybe, like, talk about field dimensions. Like, when I, when I watch this game... It kind of looks like about the size of a football field, but I'm not really sure. So, I don't know. Do you have some, like, math that you could uh, drop now and kind of explain that to me? Do, do I ever? Do I ever? So, this is a very common question that people people ask because you're, you're looking at these athletes run for 90 minutes. And they're walking sometimes positionally. They're jogging sometimes, but... I mean, they're, they're running, rolling around, so, holding their ankles sometimes. Sometimes they roll. Today, Mason Mount grabbed his face. Nobody knows why. He was kicking <laughs> the shin, but he grabbed his face. That happens sometimes. Um, but yes, this is a, a common question. So, in your mind, imagine a basketball court for me, Josh. Okay. How big do you think it is? Ooh. Uh, maybe, like, I don't know, 92 feet from baseline to baseline and then like i don't know 50 feet wide gosh josh you're a basketball connoisseur because that's 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 pretty much nailed on yeah a little bit less than that on on both those measurements but oh right around that 92 feet by 50 feet it's just my imagination running wild it's crazy isn't it so then give, a me, give me another field, one the, yeah the baseball field measures at the diamond what's the diamond measurements uh, 90 feet between each base, like home to first and then first to second, second to third, yeah. third to home. So, yeah. So a 90 by 90 by 90 square for the, for the diamond. Mm-hmm. Then you have the foul lines on the side. Are, is that what they're called? They... I don't watch baseball. <laughs> sure. Foul lines. <laughs> and it's gonna, it's gonna actually start varying by stadium there. That's going to yeah. get into like fun little walls and, uh, corners and, yeah, each uh, each professional stadium at least is going to be unique. Yeah, so it, most of them fall within the 300 to 400 foot range for both the foul lines and then uh, all the way out to kind of home base to the center field wall. So mm-hmm. that's pretty big, you know, 400 almost 400 feet in some of these cases. Most of them are kind of around that 350 mark. Um, 
Of course, they help you by painting the number on the wall, so that's kind of nice. You know, you know exactly how far oh, yeah. to hit it if you're trying to hit a home run. Super helpful. That's that, that's why sometimes uh, they don't hit it as hard as they could because they can see the number and you're like, oh, I'm gonna have to hit it 395. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. So. Uh, a football field, an NFL field, is probably the most direct comparison. Obviously, baseball fields are weird, so you can't really compare them to any other sport. But the most uh-huh. direct comparison is probably a football field. So they're 300 feet long. Like 100 hopefully yards? That math is not, yeah, hopefully that math is not too complicated for most people. 100 yards, one yard is three feet. Okay. So 300 Got feet it. long plus the end zones is uh, is three. How much, Josh? Plus the end zones? Uh, 360. 360, that's right, 30 feet per end zone, so 10 yards in each of the end zones. Yes. The field is then 160 feet wide, so okay, uh, pretty close to a soccer field. And to the baseball point earlier, FIFA allows kind of ranges for these fields at tournaments. So none of these fields are going to be exactly the same size. But FIFA requires a World Cup men's field to be between 330 and 360 feet long okay so almost the exact length of a football field with the end zones Mm -hmm. what you're looking at Mm -hmm. a little bit longer than the field of play for a football field but they're they're then 210 to 240 feet wide so significantly wider at least 50 feet wider and in most cases they're going to be closer to 60 70 feet wider than a football field so that's a that's a pretty significant difference from a width perspective. So when you see these guys running, think about it in terms of a football field. When you see a 50-yard bomb thrown, these, some of these guys are, are making 50-yard runs down these fields, sprinting, dribbling a ball. So respect. Yeah. Uh, so some of the other terms, this is a fun one, and this actually helps American fans because even British commentators – all the international commentators, they call them these because it's a British game, and they use yards as a, as a form of measurement. But the 18-yard box, you'll hear that called out a lot during a game. People will talk about the 18-yard box. So it's not metric, thankfully, right? Yeah, uh, if it was the 18-yard box, box, I wouldn't watch the sport. No, it would be way too confusing. But the 18-yard box is 18 yards from the baseline, so the goal post, the goal line, out to the top of the box. So it's 18 yards. If a player takes a shot from that line on the big box where the goalie can use his hands, mm-hmm. uh, it, it is 18 yards from the goal when he takes that shot. And that never varies. Like even if that the field's not a little vary. bit shorter uh, or longer um, in that 330 to 360 range, that 18-yard box is always 18 yards. Always 18 yards, yes. And it's always the width. The width is going to be a lot more standardized because the ranges are smaller, but the width is going to be right at between 130 and 135 feet. So the width can vary slightly on the 18-yard box, but Mm -hmm. it's always going to be 18 yards deep, and then the width is going to be a smaller range. So that's so interesting that, like, your corner kicks could be uh, from different lengths at different stadiums. Uh, uh-huh. You would think that it would be, it would be more unified, but not so. Well, and it kind of plays into some of that home field advantage too. If you're used to taking set pieces in your stadium and they're slightly different measure- measurements, it's uh, it's it's an interesting thing. So, mm-hmm. um, so again, eighteen yard box, 
the keepers can use their hands in that area. Uh, another question I've gotten about just kind of boundaries. The boundaries are all centered on the ball, not the player. So sometimes you'll see a goalkeeper grab a ball and his feet are completely out of bounds. Yep. It doesn't matter. It's where the ball is. So that's the same. It's true of, of goals as well. That ball has to entirely cross the line to be out of bounds or in the goal. Um, mm -hmm. And so a goalkeeper can, can you know, obviously be out of the field of play with his body as long as the ball is still in the field of play. There's no weird, you know, establishing yourself back in the field of play like there is in football. So if somebody's running down a sideline and they step out of bounds, it doesn't matter. It's completely irrelevant. It's all centered on the ball and where the ball is on the field. Okay, I so think I got it. Two other, two other things about the, the eighteen yard box. Uh, inside of it, there's a smaller box called the six yard box. Uh, this essentially it serves basically one purpose, kind of kind of two purposes that you will almost never see in professional soccer. The second purpose, but the main purpose is it shows the area where a goalkeeper can take a goal kick from. Oh, yeah. So a goalkeeper, if it goes out of bounds, he can take that goal kick from anywhere inside of that box, but not outside of it. Um, it doesn't have to be on the side it went out. It doesn't have to be on the line itself. It can be in the middle of it and in the middle of the box. It doesn't matter. Um, up until 2006, it also served the purpose of similar to ice hockey, where if there was contact on the goalkeeper within that area, it was always a foul and usually a yellow card. Huh. So FIFA did away with that rule in, I think, 2005, 2006. And so Probably now the, the contact, yeah, the contact on the keeper is consistent no matter where it happens on the field. Uh, but yes, that six-yard box no longer protects the goalkeeper. Uh, the second purpose that it does serve is it limits how close a free kick can be to the goal. So you'll see players, and, and you know Americans like black and white in some respects. That's why we have so many freaking reviews in the NFL, because you want the objectivity of the rule. And I think subjectivity of soccer annoys people in some instances. I think it's just a beautiful thing about it. Uh, but from an a objectivity standpoint, back passes are something that you hear about in American vernacular, American soccer vernacular. And it means when you kick a ball back to your goalkeeper, they cannot pick that ball up with their hands. So what you will see in this tournament a lot of is people chesting the ball back to the goalkeeper or heading the ball back to the goalkeeper. And mm -hmm. in both those instances, the goalkeeper can handle the ball. So they can pick it up. But in the event that a ball is kicked back to a goalkeeper and he picks it up and an indirect free kick is awarded, so it would not be a penalty, it would be an indirect free kick, which means the ball cannot go from that spot directly into the goal. It has to take contact at some point. So if an indirect free kick is awarded inside of that six-yard box, it cannot be closer than the line of that six-yard box. So that's the only other purpose it serves. You'll probably never see that play out. Gotcha. The ball so, cannot be closer to the goal on an indirect free kick than that box. Got it. So if, if I'm the goalie and I'm standing on the goal line and you're on my team and you pass it back to me and I break the rules by picking it up, then the other team would get to set the ball down basically on that six-yard box line and try and score from there, but someone else has to touch it first on their team. They can't just kick it straight in. Is that what I understood? Correct. Correct. Yep. Cool. Exactly. Let's hope we never see that. 
Oh, it's terrible. I think the only time I've ever seen an indirect free kick in a World Cup was uh, it was in 2006, and it was so stupid. <laughs> I think it ended up being a goal because somebody just drilled it, you know, and of course it's going to hit somebody on the way through traffic. Uh, so it, it deflected and went in, and it's just like, come on, guys. Everybody just get out of the way and let the guy have a shot, you know, I don't, whatever. Um, I think that's enough math. If I'm honest, I think I'm yeah. full. Oh, whew. Enough math. Okay. Would love your questions on that if anybody needs more more clarification on it. But, yes, for now we will move on. All right. So, round two. This is where it starts to get really fun. Oh, yeah. I think, anyway. I don't know. I don't know what your perspective is on this, Josh. But this is where I think it starts to get really fun because we really start to see the groups take shape. <clears throat> uh, in the instance of group A, you already have somebody that's eliminated. So you can work out, once two games are played by all the teams, exactly what all of the qualification scenarios are. So I know that, uh, it, that American fans love, at this time of year especially, once you're in the NFL season, we still have, what, like seven games and eight games to play in the NFL, but people are already starting to show the, the seeding for the NFL playoffs and exactly kind of what the, the percentage scenarios are and what needs to happen for all those to, to, to play, whatever. In this... In this World Cup, after game two, you start to really see those scenarios. And it does get kind of fun because it's pretty easy math with only one more game to play and four teams. Uh, but it also allows you to start kind of looking at other groups and seeing who you might play and why and kind of what your path to that final cup is. So I love this part. Also, everyone gets their nerves out in the, in the first round, so you generally see a lot more goals, people going for it, fewer ties, a lot more wins and losses. Uh, but yeah, it's it's fun to see. So example of a little, and I'm not going to do a lot of math here, Josh. But example, we know exactly how Group A can play out. Okay, so Qatar is eliminated; they're out of the picture. Netherlands sits on top right now, with Ecuador second, Senegal third. Ecuador Senegal play each other, so the winner of that game is going to go through. Yep. Now, if they tie. Senegal cannot go through because they don't get any points. So Senegal has to win. Ecuador can tie or win oh. and go through. Uh-huh. And then the Netherlands can tie, win, or even potentially lose based on goal differential uh, and, and the result of the, of the Ecuador-Senegal game. So if Senegal wins that game and the Netherlands lose, Netherlands will still go through. So there's, there's some fun scenarios that start to play out there. Uh, group B, we talked about this a little bit. The U.S., it's a win-and-in scenario. Uh, if they draw, Iran will go through. Uh, but if they win, they go through. I love that the pressure is on, but the pressure is not on along with somebody else's results. If Iran and Wales had drawn today, it technically would have been a better result for us. But we would have ended today on two points, and Wales would have ended today on two points and England play Wales, so we would have to have England beat Wales and us beat Iran or tie Iran without Wales. And so the, you just get into too many things that are dependencies. Uh, in this scenario, we win and we're in. And I like that. It's, mm -hmm. it's simple. Yeah. Another thing we'll see that's different for uh, the later stages of the group is we've been having one game at a time, so four games, one after the other throughout the day. Uh, when you get to the third game, uh, all four teams in a group are going to play at the same time. As in, kickoff time will be 
2 o'clock Eastern for all, all four teams in the group, the, the two games going on. And that's because uh, the result of one game could impact another, and you don't want to give an unfair advantage to um, an, a, like a later team that might find out from the other game ending that, oh, we're already through the group stage, so we can like conserve our players, let them rest, and stick in subs and stuff like that. So you'll see two games played simultaneously, and that can that can have fun scenarios where they like have coaches on the sideline knowing the score of the other game, and they're telling them like go for it and try and score in the last couple minutes or what have you. So hopefully we get some excitement from that as well. Yeah, you start to see the fans get into it too as they look at their phones and they they start to see the scores come through and mm-hmm. and cheer or boo. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's it, it is really fun. I love that they kick off all those games at the same time. That's a that's a really big deal in this in the third round of games. Yeah, all right. It so... reminds me. It reminds me of uh, if you remember back. I think it was, I think it was like the first Premier League that Man City won in kind of their reign of terror. Uh, but Manchester United uh, was thinking that they were going to win the league. Their game ended. They had won. Uh, Manchester City was losing. And they, like, look at the score and see that, like, oh, they, like, they're the only team that could beat us. And they're losing at the end of the game. We basically had the league one. And then Manchester City scores two goals in stoppage time to go from down a goal to up a goal and win the league. Uh, there were scenes. It was, it was Sergio Aguero. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely crazy. Um, one of the, I mean, one of the great moments in sporting history. Uh, it, it really, really was. Yeah. Because the Premier League does the same thing. The final day, all the games kick off at the same time. So you have yeah. kind of the everybody's playing, not knowing what, what's happening uh, in in real time. So it's it's pretty cool to watch. And you're right, that will be a really neat kind of component of of. Uh, the third round of games so we do wrap up the second round and let me just look at my schedule here to make sure i know exactly when uh we wrap up round two on monday so the u.s will play that game against iran on tuesday the 29th at 1 p.m central 2 p.m eastern mm-hmm. and wales england will kick off at the same time so uh, we don't really have a dependency on that game, so uh, you know, just go out and win. It's not a huge, huge deal. We just need to go win, baby. So um, that'll that'll be fun. But Monday, November twenty eighth, we'll wrap up round one, and you'll start to see these double header games that that pop up. So a little more manageable time slots too. Instead of the the four a.m., seven a.m., ten a.m., we got nine a.m. and one p.m. or ten a.m. and two p.m. Eastern. So it does get a little bit easier to watch these. In, in real time so thank you uh, that that part will be yeah thank you qatar thank you which i've gotten this question too it's brutal these 1 p.m central 2 p.m eastern games mm-hmm. that the u.s is playing these time slots that's 10 p.m local time for kickoff crazy these guys are starting games late i mean they're not finished they're not wrapping games up until until midnight and they're not getting back to hotels until one or two in the morning yeah. So they're having to kind of mess with circadian rhythms and and kind of the play schedule and 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 get their bodies in tune with with the play schedule, not necessarily the the day. So did you say circadian rhythms? Is that what I heard? <clears throat> I said c- 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 circadian rhythms. 
just curious. I mean, I'm I'm sure I've said so much stupid stuff this podcast that uh, you haven't called out. So I'm sorry I did that. But I heard Sarcadian uh, rhythms and I kind of chuckled. Yes. Yeah, so, well, it's a sar- it's a sarcasm to the yeah. to the radiant whatever. All right. Um. So, Group D and C play tomorrow. Mm-hmm. This is important for a couple of reasons. You know, you'll this group will really take shape because. In Group C, we have Saudi Arabia on top with three points. Huh. And in Group D, we have France on top with three points, which is le- less of a surprise. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think I think Group D shook out kind of how we thought it would. Tunisia, Denmark tied on one. Australia last, France first. But Group yep. C is a little bit different. We've got Saudi Arabia first, Poland second, Mexico third, Argentina fourth. Not I, expected. If you gave me, yeah, if you gave me this group and said, tell me after match day one what it's going to be, I would have flipped this and have Argentina-Mexico first, second. Yep. So tomorrow, Saudi Arabia played Poland. And based on how Poland played in that first game, I just don't think Saudi Arabia is going to be afraid of them. And Saudi Arabia can, can all but clinch a forward progression with a win here. So I think Saudi Arabia is going to go for this. Uh, I don't know how well it's going to play out. I like a 1-1 draw here because I don't think Poland's going to give up. Uh, and they looked a little bit nervy in that first game. They're not going to show as much respect to Saudi Arabia as they did Mexico. They're going to try to attack it. But mm-hmm. I, Saudi Arabia, man, they've got some heart. So I, I like a 1-1 draw here. What do you think, Josh? I had this at a 0-0. Um, I do think they'll go for it. I just don't know that it's going to translate to the goals. Um, so I pick 0-0. Uh, not super confident on that. So hold me to it. Okay, I will. All right, Tunisia, Australia. That's the early, early game tomorrow. That's actually a Group D game. Uh, So Australia last place, Tunisia first place. Australia's last, the goal differential, negative three. It hurts. They've really Mm -hmm. got to win. Uh, They've got to beat Tunisia. They have to beat Tunisia really to be a part of this group. And they have to get a result against Denmark to have any chance. I just, I, I honestly think that after Qatar, Australia is probably the worst team at this tournament. I hate to say it. I love my Socceroos, but uh, I just, I don't think that they are very good. Um, so I, I think that Tunisia is going to come out here and get after this game, and I think Tunisia is going to beat them 2-0. Yeah, I, uh, I have Tunisia winning 1-0. So I think we're of the same mind. Not, not happy about the result necessarily, but. Uh, yeah, I don't think Australia is going to have it in them, unfortunately. Yeah. So the other Group D game, France-Denmark, this was a little bit more interesting. Uh, we saw France take on obviously lesser competition. Uh, it's not to say that Denmark is a, you know, like a, an England or a Spain, but they are good. They're good. Mm-hmm. And they mm-hmm. did really, really well in the Euros tournament last time. They did very good in, in qualifying. They did not show up that well in the first game against Tunisia. But I think Denmark can really give France a game. Uh, they're very well structured. They have very solid uh, defense. I mean, their two center backs are just great. They've got great midfield play, a lot of veterans. Uh, so I actually, this is my upset for the day. I like Denmark. And when I say upset, it's a loose term. I like Denmark to pull out a 1-1 win here. Uh, and that, that would be a win for them in this match. Okay. I uh, I think I'm going to avoid making the mistake of 
of doubting France again. I actually have France winning this one 3-0. I think their quality players are going to deliver. So uh, we will we will see on this one. Yeah, it, it could be an interesting one. All right, and in the final game, this is really the game that has the most intrigue. So if you're only going to watch one tomorrow, I would watch the 1 p.m. game or the 2 p.m. Eastern game. Uh, I don't know if that's your game of the day too, Josh, but Argentina-Mexico. And the reason this one is so significant is because we've talked about Messi, what an exceptional player he is, how this is going to be his last tournament. Well, if Argentina don't win this game, if they don't get the three points here, they're done. Mm-hmm. And that will be significant. Uh, because then you get into a game day three where Mexico is going to be heavily favored against Saudi Arabia. And if Poland or Saudi Arabia win the game tomorrow, it's going to shake up the group. If they get a draw, then still mathematically you can kind of do some finessing to help Argentina out. But I think Argentina have to win this game to stay in the tournament. That being said, I think Mexico really want this game too. And I just didn't see enough from Argentina in that first game. So I don't think Argentina is going to hang up four on them. I still think Argentina is going to win, but I only think they're going to win 2-1. Okay. I have this as my game of the day to watch, and I have Argentina 3, Mexico 1. So we're going to we're gonna speak this one into existence, I hope. Keep the group interesting and keep uh, Messi's tournament alive. Yeah, keep it keep it going, please. Please, please, please. All right, well, we've got some great games on Sunday too, and, and Josh and I will uh will one of us or both of us will get together and do kind of a short recap of yesterday's games and preview of Sundays. But uh thanks a lot for listening tonight. I know we've we've been in your ears for a long time now, so uh we'll leave your ears. But thanks for listening. Huge day for the US. Uh, really, really excited with that result, and I think it's it's pointing towards a very bright future for us in this tournament and and future ones. Anything for you to sign off, Josh? No, everyone, go sign up uh, for Homekeeper, and then you'll have plenty of time to watch your World Cup games. Truth, 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 truth. All right, see you, buddy. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you. Good night. Night.